It is good to be together. If you're a guest here, my name is Mark Masters, and as Jeremy just said, Door Creek, Door Creek, be here. So it's been a great summer of ministry, Door Creek. Something we're really excited about at the end of August, but just even in the last week, we've had a team come back from Haiti, some students that were doing great ministry there. This past week, we've had 24 of our students from North Campus out in LA doing awesome ministry. Today starts Madison Missions. 66 middle school students will be based out of our Sprecher campus and then going out in our city to serve our city with all kinds of partners and nonprofits doing good to people who are in tough situations. So we, we love that. Want to give you an update of uh, all that God's doing around this place. I'm thinking specifically of Rooted, which is this kind of next chapter in our church's history. It's an opportunity for us to be grounded in Christ for the good of the world. And so here's what's happened. We've, uh, we've had $1.5 million in pledges made five months ago. We've had $675,000 given in the last five months. That's all above and beyond our regular support of the ministries here, which is awesome. That means... Uh, over $50,000 have gone out to compassion projects, to helping these new sports soccer fields get uh, laid out, uh, training initiatives. Then in addition to that, we've given um, $250,000 to the bank to pay down our mortgage, which is awesome. And then we have two hundred seventy of the 300,000 in hand to help build out that next location for North Campus. So here we are in our digs. The kids are downstairs. We're here in this room. That's not how it works in a smaller place up north. So the adults are in one place, smaller place. Then across the way in the karate place, the kids are there. So we're excited to have expanded space that we control 24-7. And you can be praying about that. But just thanks Thanks for your generosity through Rooted. Thanks for your generosity through the Benevolence Fund that this week allowed us to help a family whose house burned down and they lost everything and we were able to get them a bunch of great stuff through Boomerangs, a resale store, and then help them to find a new place and get back on their feet again. It's awesome. So we got a month left in our fiscal year. So our ministry year ends August 31st. And just kind of give you a, an update of where we're at. So our budget was 3.1. We've been quietly trimming that down. So we're only going to spend 2.9. And we need about 350000 in the next, including this weekend, in the next four weekends. So this weekend will be five. So if you'd remember that in your prayers, and thanks for considering giving an additional gift if you're able. Man, even just an extra 100 bucks. And I know for some of us, we don't have that. But some of us can do more than that. That would make a big difference as we finish the year, meeting our commitments and helping us continue to reach people who don't know Christ and grow those who do. Let me pray for us as we begin. Father in heaven, we pray that you'd open our eyes to see the wonderful things that are in store for us in your word. Help us to see why your only son is our only hope, the center of our faith, and strengthen us to center our lives more on more and more on Jesus, gladly living under his leadership in our lives every day over all that is part of our lives. To that end, we pray that you'd help and guide us. In Christ's name, amen. So in week three of our series, and we begin the focus on Christ. What you need to know 
is when the Apostle Creed begins to affirm what we believe about Jesus, it is over half of the creed. Just look at it up on the screen. So everything that's kind of highlighted, bolded there for you is all about Jesus, right? That he's Jesus Christ, God's only son, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered, crucified, right? Rose again, ascended into heaven, sits on the right hand of God the Father. From there, he's going to judge the living dead. So over half of the creed is all focused on Christ. Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection is at the center of our faith. And if Jesus is at the center of our faith, he needs to be at the center of our lives, so then it raises this question. So what is our life centered on? I, I know the easy answer is, well, I, I think it's supposed to be Jesus. So Jesus, it's kind of like the Sunday school teacher is saying to the kids in Sunday school. So kids, I want you to think about something that's, it's kind of brown. Sometimes it's gray, it's furry. It climbs trees and it gathers nuts. And the little boy raises his hand and says, teacher, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel to me. <laughs> So you go, I, I know the right answer for where do I center my life is Jesus. But no, really, what was your life centered on this week? Is Jesus at the center of our life? He's at the center of our faith. He's at the center of the creed, which is kind of the, the big rocks, if you will, of our faith. Is he the center of our lives? So we begin by affirming that Jesus Christ is his only son, our Lord. And when we affirm that, what we're affirming is that Jesus is God's savior. That's what Jesus means. It's a, it was a regular name. It's the, the, the Greek, the New Testament version of the Old Testament word Joshua. Jesus means God saves, God's salvation. And he saves us, the angel tells Joseph, from our sins. He's God's Savior. That's his name, Jesus. His God-given name that the angel said, God wants you to name this special boy Jesus, God's Savior. But he's not just God's Savior. He is the promised Savior, Messiah. So Christ speaks to Messiah in the Old Testament. It means the anointed one. So who are the anointed ones in the Old Testament? Well, the kings were anointed. The priests were anointed. They were set apart by God for a very special purpose, to be God's special agent in this world for his people for a specific cause, to lead him as king, to mediate between God and the people as priests. He is this promised savior. So Christ is not Jesus' last name. But like some of our last names, like any bakers in the house, I see some bakers, any tailors in the house, any shoemakers in the house, any smiths in the house, all those names go back to somebody who was a baker, right? Who was a blacksmith, who was a shoemaker. So when we think about Christ, we think about his title and that he is the one who was promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15. This promised Savior. He's going to be one of Eve's descendants who's going to crush the enemy, Genesis 
He's going to be one of Abraham's descendants, chapter 12 of Genesis, who's going to bring God's blessing to all the families. This one who didn't have a son, he said, I'm going to give you a son. He wasn't just talking about Isaac, who's going to bring blessing to all the families. He's talking about Jesus. This one who would be the fulfillment of God's promise to King David, who wanted so badly to build God a temple. And God said, look, you're a man of war. Your son's going to build a temple. But let me tell you what I'm going to build. I'm going to build your house, your dynasty. And out of your lineage, David, you are going to have a son who sets up an eternal kingdom and reigns forever, 2 Samuel 7. This is his promised Savior. Not only is he going to come as a king, but he's going to come as a king who suffers. Ah, that was tripping up the people in Jesus' day. Because, man, every day that they did life in Palestine, they were reminded that Palestine, Palestine was occupied. It'd be like you and I living every day and wherever we go in Dane County, wherever we go in America, there's these foreign soldiers with guns and tanks that don't say U.S. Army on it, say some other country. And we're like reminded, like, this is busted up. This is wrong. And so when they're thinking about God's promise of a savior, they're always thinking about a conquering king who's gonna free us from Rome. But Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, reminds us that this promised Savior is going to suffer. And he's going to bring God's salvation through suffering. He's going to be pierced. He's going to be wounded. He's going to be bruised for our sin. He's going to experience hell, separation from God, so that we could have peace with God. This one would be born of a virgin, the prophet Isaiah says. He's going to be born in this little town of Bethlehem. The prophet Micah says, he is the Messiah, God's promised Savior, and we affirm that, and we celebrate that. He's Jesus the Christ, and he's God's only son. When we say only son, we're talking about unique. There's nobody else like Jesus. Remember what we learned when we were back in Colossians this summer, Colossians 1. Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. Wow, he's the image. You could translate the exact representation of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And when we talk about Jesus being the firstborn, it's not saying that there was a time when he didn't exist, as we're going to see here, but it speaks of his privileged position, that he's supreme over all things. Because it goes on to say, speaking of his supremacy, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things created through him and for him. So he stands before creation. He's going to say that. Verse 17, he's before all things. And in him all things hold together. And again in chapter 2, verse 9, in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells. We're, we're going to see that what we're affirming when we say, and we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, that he's God's son, he's Mary's son. He's fully God and he's fully man. And in that, he is unique. He's the unique son of God. The angel Gabriel said to Mary, he's going to be the holy one. He's going to be the son of God. When Jesus is baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist, there's a voice from heaven that proclaims, Matthew 3, 17, the father speaking, said, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. Again, at his transfiguration, what is that? That was when he took Peter, James, and John up to a mountain, and it's like 
He lifted the shade. He just let him see who he really is in all of his glory. And at that point, as they see Jesus and get a glimpse of his unbelievable deity, there's an again, a voice from heaven. And it says this in 17.5, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, listen to him. The demons called him the son of God. The disciples acknowledged him to be the son of God. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Some think I'm a prophet. Some think I'm John the Baptist. Who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the promised Savior, the son of the living God. Now, here's what's important. It's not just what people said about Jesus. And it's not just what Jesus did that made us come to a conclusion. Wow, he's not just any man. He turns water into wine. That's pretty significant, changing the molecular structure of water. He calms the sea from a raging storm to like glass. Like if they had boats back then, they could have barefoot skied, you know, outboard motors. He's the guy who could raise people from the dead. He's the one who could forgive sins. He's the one who had authority over people to say, come follow me. It's not just what he did, it's what he said. He continually is claiming to be God's son. In John chapter five, he's just healed the man who was lame and couldn't walk on the Sabbath. And so we read, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's what he was doing when he said, before Abraham was, I am. An allusion back to God's encounter with Moses in Exodus 3. It was very crystal clear when he says, recorded by John in chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father were one. I and the Father were one. And when he said that, the Jewish leaders picked up stones to kill him. They knew what he was saying. He's claiming to be God, the Son of God. So at his trial before the high priest, we read this in Matthew 26. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you're the Messiah, this promised king who's come to save, the Son of God. What does Jesus say? You have said so. It's true, Jesus is saying. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? See, they've been calling all these witnesses and the witnesses couldn't agree. And now Jesus just made it clear. And the high priest say, We're done here. You have all heard it. Multiple witnesses. He's claiming to be God. He says to them, Look, now... You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And what do they answer? He's worthy to die. He's claimed to be God. And John 19 makes it really clear what he meant, the high priest, when he said blasphemy. We read this in 19.7 of John's gospel. We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. And in their conclusion was, and he's definitely not. Jesus claimed to be the son. Jesus dies on the cross because of that claim. Make no confusing uh, conclusions that Jesus only saw himself as this really great moral teacher. He doesn't give us that option. He either is who he said he is, or he's a liar, or he's just a flat-out lunatic 
but he claims to be the son of God. John said, I wrote my gospel so that you might believe that Jesus is the son of God. So here it is. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Wherever Paul is preaching in in the synagogues when he's going out with the good news, he's always connecting the dots to the Jewish people that he's preaching to. Jesus Christ from Nazareth, the one who died on a cross, actually is the promised Messiah, the Son of God. And the apostles would say, there is no other name under heaven by which a person can be saved. Acts chapter 4, 12. So Jesus is God's salvation. He is the Christ, the promised Savior that all of God's people have been looking toward, the hope, the one who is going to break the curse by being cursed himself. And he is God's only unique son. There's nobody else like him. That's what everybody claimed, from the demons to the religious establishment to Jesus' followers to Jesus himself. And the uniqueness of the son is seen in that next line, his miraculous birth, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So Larry King, the great interviewer, right? He was asked, if you could interview anyone, Larry, living or dead, who would be your number one choice? Easy, says Larry. I'd interview Jesus. Well, what would you ask him? Well, the first question I'd ask him is this. Were you really born of a virgin? Because he said, the answer to that question would define history for me. For a lot of people, though, maybe for some of you here listening to me now, you hear this and it just goes against your rational thinking and you go, how in the world can that happen? How can a virgin become pregnant? And we hear what we affirm in the creed, conceived by the Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and we go, I don't know. It's really good to catch up with the story, the narrative that the Bible gives us of the account of Jesus' birth and catch up with his parents, Joseph and Mary. And remember, anything you're struggling with along those lines, that's not new. Like Joseph, when he hears that Mary's pregnant, the first thing he's going, wasn't me. I know it wasn't me. He hadn't been intimate with Mary. And so what is his conclusion? Is, I don't want to disgrace her. He was a good man. But I've got to break this off. So he's going to quietly divorce her. They're not married. They're betrothed. But the deal was, when you were engaged back in that day, when you were betrothed, it was, it was like it was a done deal. And so to break a betrothal, you had to file a certificate of divorce. And he wants to just kind of do it. Hey, this thing, he's troubled by it. This is a deal breaker. He's ready to move on because he's not buying it. It's like, uh-uh, uh-uh. I know it's not me, so it was another guy. And until the angel said, no, actually it's the Holy Spirit. Mary, when she hears the angel Gabriel comes to her, she's troubled. She's freaking out. She's in the presence of an angel who's thinking, in her mind, she's going, I'm in the presence of God. That's what always happens when God's people meet up with an angel. They fall on their knees and the angel says, get up. I'm not God. I'm just a messenger. And when she hears the message that you're going to have a child, she says, how can this be? Just like what we're thinking. How, 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 how? 
The mysteries drive us to that how question all the time. Ah, but it's good to remember that the things that we're struggling with, ah, that Mary and Joseph were struggling with those things. So let's jump into it and first look at the account in Matthew's gospel. So the affirmation in the creed of Jesus' miraculous birth is based on the account in Matthew's gospel, the account in Luke's. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You know it's not you? You thinking it's another man? It's not. It's the Holy Spirit. It's God. She will give birth to a son, verse 21, and you're to give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means, right? God saves. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet like a long time ago. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel. We're talking 700 years plus before. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home and his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage. In other words, they didn't have sexual union until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. So what we're affirming here is that Jesus came into this world miraculously. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So his beginnings are a miracle. Shouldn't surprise us because what we know about the end of his life is all surrounded by miracles. So he's raised on the third day from the dead and then 40 days later, he literally ascends into the heavens, out of sight, to a bunch of disciples that are just going, is this, is this really happening? This is unbelievable. He just disappears in the heavens. So we shouldn't be surprised that his beginnings are of miraculous origin. We shouldn't be surprised that the Holy Spirit's connected with this miracle because the Spirit is connected with creation, physical creation, Genesis 1-2, the Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep as God speaks this world into existence and then new creation. Jesus would say to Nicodemus, flesh births flesh, but the Spirit, Spirit. You gotta be born again. How does that happen, Nicodemus says. He says it happens through the Spirit. It's the Spirit who gives us new spiritual life. It's the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead. We shouldn't be surprised that the Spirit would be involved here. In Luke's account, we catch up with Mary. And as I read it, it's good to remember, and some of our kids going off to Madison Mission are just that age, because it's easy to think of Mary older. But the scholars say she's probably somewhere between 12 and 14 years of age. She's young. And here's what we read. Luke 1, 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of a greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you're to call him Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Ding, 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 2 Samuel 7. He's this promised Savior, the Son of David, setting up eternal kingdom, and he'll reign forever. He'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel. Since I'm a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. It's not the how as much as it's the who. And the power of the Most High, again, the Holy Spirit, will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And if you think that's impossible, that you could be part of a miraculous birth, let me just tell you what's happening to your older cousin who has been infertile all of her life, Elizabeth. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. And here's why. For no word from God will ever fail. And here's her beautiful response. I'm the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So she's born of a virgin. And this didn't just show up in the New Testament with Luke's gospel. It just didn't happen when when Gabriel came and announced what was going to happen. Actually, this is rooted hundreds of years before in Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 7, verse 4. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. And so what we're affirming here is that Jesus is both God's son and Mary's son. He's fully human, but he's more than just a great man. He's more than just a human being. He is fully God, fully man at the same time. He is, as John says, God in the flesh, God with skin on him. So John opens his gospel talking about the incarnation, about Christmas. And he picks up the language of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John says, in the beginning was the word, speaking, using the word, word, as a metaphor of who Jesus is. He explains to us what God is like. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He says, everything that came into being came in through him. And then he says in verse 14, and the word, Jesus, became flesh. And he lived among us. Literally, it's the word, he tabernacled among us. And it's reminding us of how God lived with his people. First, you know, he led them out of Egypt, the pillar, right? A fire at night, the cloud during the day. And then God's presence rested in the Holy of Holies over the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God's presence was. And now he's reminding us that God is present through his son. It's not about a place, it's about a person. And the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us and we beheld his glory. Glory of the only begotten son, the one and only son, full of grace and truth. That's what we're affirming here, that Jesus is the Christ, the promised savior, God's one and only son, God who took on human flesh to save us from that which leads us eternally separated from God under his wrath, under the curse, 
under God's judgment. He's the one who comes to save. Jesus, God's only son, our only hope. So does that matter? Some of us are like, man, that's just so hard. Really? Does it matter that we believe in this mysterious miracle? Or can we just go, I don't know, I like, really like Jesus and I believe he died. You might even go, I think I can hold on to the resurrection from what I'm reading about eyewitness accounts. But this, does it matter? So remember what we said week one. If you weren't here, one of the things we said is, one of the beauties of the creed is, it takes the big rocks of our faith and it reminds us what's, in, what's essential, what's important. I love that line, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. So the creed is telling us, actually, this is really important because if he wasn't born of a, of a virgin, well, then Isaiah lied. And Gabriel lied. And if Gabriel's God's messenger, God lied, and Mary lied, and the gospel writers lied, very likely that Luke caught up with Mary at some time in his life because he tells us so much about the early events. So Luke lied, and, and all of a sudden we're going, well, if God can't be trusted at this point in his word, so where do we trust? It actually matters. In fact, Lewis would say of the incarnation, it's this miracle that holds all the other miracles together. So Jesus is the fulfillment, not only of all the promises of the Old Testament, but he's the fulfillment of all the miracles are pointing to Christ. And so you, you lose the incarnation, then you lose all these past miracles, and you see the incarnation helps us understand what Jesus is doing because he's exhibiting the fact that he is the God-man. He's not just a man. He's not just this incredible prophet that God sent here. No, he is Fully God, fully man. He exhibits it. It's on display. So what do we do with mystery? And the incarnation isn't the only one. Like God creating everything from nothing. Oh, that happened. How, how do we deal with the Trinity? One God who exists in three persons? They're distinct. They're one. They're all fully God, that's blowing the circuitry. How, how, do we, how do we catch up with the mystery where the Bible asserts and claims that God, using human authors, gives us his holy word? How does that happen? How can we trust that everything here is what God intended for us to receive, that he preserved it, and he did it through messy people like you and me? How do we hang on to this mystery that when we place our faith in Christ alone that his spirit now lives within us and the spirit who is outside of creation transcends creation but is in us individually who know Christ? How does that work? How do we hang on to this truth, this mystery that says, actually, if our faith is in Christ, the day we die, our death instantaneously becomes a doorway into his presence? Huh. How do, what do we do with mystery? One of the things is we don't get preoccupied with the how question. The fact that it's a mystery is because it doesn't tell us all that we want to know about how. That was Mary's question. How? This is your question. How could this be possible? Someone 
who's never been intimate with a man who's pregnant? How can a virgin be pregnant? Ah, but, but embrace what the, what the mysteries give us. So this would be a great example. When Genesis 1 unfolds creation, it's not acting like a science book. It's not, it's not concerned with the how question. It's concerned with the who question. It's God who made all this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and it tells us why. What does it tell us in the incarnation? It tells us who. The spirit. This is a God thing. And it tells us why. Because God is sending his Savior into this world. God is exercising his love in sending his son, Jesus, his love for us, in laying down his life. And as we understand that, the who and the why, it ought to lead us to wonder and amazement and song, praise. That's what Mary does. And go back to Luke chapter 1, when she finds out about it, when she hears Elizabeth say to her, when she feels John the Baptist kind of jump in, you know, in her womb, that she, 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 she explain, ex, exclaims, praise to God that Mary is bearing her Savior. And Mary breaks out in song. And that's what we ought to do. That's what we're going to do as we close the service. We're going to be singing about God with us. He's for us, this God who sent his son, the promised Savior, the unique and only Savior, who is fully God and fully man. So here's what we're affirming. Jesus is the promised Savior. He's God's salvation, the only one, his son, our only hope. We're affirming he's fully God He's fully man and that he's our Lord. So when we say he's our Lord, to say that, we, we have to get to this point of he's my Lord. So it's, it's not, so remember about faith? Faith isn't just an intellectual assent where remember I've used this a few times, maybe you heard me, about Blonde and the great tightrope guy who crosses the Niagara on the tightrope and he's got the wheelbarrow and he gets to the other side, the crowd's going crazy, do you think I could do it again? And they say, yes, 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 great, get in. And I go, oh, wait a minute, I, I didn't mean that. I didn't, I didn't have that kind of faith. Now, biblical faith isn't just, I, I agree with it up here. It actually works out in my life so that I place my life in his hands. I'm living under his rule. What does that look like? It looks like Mary, who submits her life to God's mission and letting God rewrite her story to the point where she's likely gonna use, lose her marriage. She's for sure gonna lose her reputation. Like, who's gonna believe her as, her, as she extends right in this pregnancy that honest? I've been pure. And I mean, everybody's going to go, yeah, right. Can you believe she's trying to sell that song? And she, she submits to all that, the ridicule, the shame, losing Joseph. That's this beautiful mark of what it means to live under God's leadership, to submit to him. And so if Jesus Christ, and we affirm as our Lord, the real question is, is he my Lord? And it's not just like, do I say that? 
It's do I live that every day? Is Jesus a category in my life? Is he this rabbit foot in my life where there's certain things that uh, I allow Jesus to have leadership? And then there's a couple things like, don't mess with that, Jesus. That's my junk drawer. That's my closet. Stay out of there. Does he have sway over everything? Is he a rabbit's foot kind of Jesus where he's my Lord? Like in tough times, like I love this savior part and I just keep going to Jesus, keep going. When it's tough, I'll agree with you, when it's tough and he always delivers, he always delivers. And then when it's not tough, when life settles down, I'm good and I kind of keep doing my thing without. Is he Lord over every part of my life every day? And do I gladly place my life in his nail pierced hands? Because he loves me and he's good and he's God and there's no better place for me to live my life than under Christ who gave up his life for me, a rebel. So what is our life centered on? Who's our savior? Jesus is God's savior. Is my savior functional savior now what I turn to for identity what I turn to for peace what I turn to for happiness what I turn to, to for, for anything I need that's hard in my life is Jesus the center of my life is he Lord of my life I think it's hard I think it's really easy to kind of get in this mumble jumble of emotions and it's super subjective and Jesus makes it actually super clear. He says to his disciples in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, he said, look, if, you're, if you've received the kingdom of God, it's because you've received the king. You recognize who I am, you're doing life with me. And here are the marks. He says the very first mark is there's humility. There's this poverty of spirit where you go, God, I didn't bring anything to the table. I don't have anything to offer. It's all your grace and I understand I am spiritually bankrupt and I'm only depending upon you alone. There's this humility. It's followed by a mourning over sin. Someone who's li living under Christ's leadership doesn't laugh at sin. We don't think it's funny. We don't think it's trivial. We understand the horrors that my sin, the world's sin, brought Christ to a cross where he hung naked for you and me and suffered not just the physical torture, but separation for the Father. Do we mourn over sin? Is that my disposition? Is there meekness in my life? Which sounds like weakness, guys, doesn't it? It's not about weakness. That word meek uh, described a stallion who was tamed, strength under control. Jesus was meek. Moses was meek. There's this gentleness that's all about strength. Does that mark my life? How I interact with people. He goes on to talk about things like hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You live under Christ, then you're longing to be more like Christ. You're hungry for his word. I love walking out of church and I was talking to one of the brothers who was walking down the the, the, the sidewalk here and I was just catching up with him and he says, you know, I, I love coming here on Saturday nights. I go to another church on Sunday, but I just can't get enough of the word. And there's a guy who's hungry for living under Christ. He's Lord of our life. Our attitude towards his word is we want to know more of it because we, we want to live more according to God's word. We hunger and thirst for righteousness, God's truth, living out God's truth in justice, in mercy, in compassion. 
That's part of what it looks like to have Christ as Lord. There's a purity of our hearts. It's not so much talking about sexual purity, although that's all great. It's all important. It's actually talking about a singleness, a focus. We're not double-minded. We have a pure heart. We've got a single-track mind and desire. Christ first, Christ first in my life. We're peacemakers, not troublemakers. And we're willing to suffer. So may God help us to believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's only son, our only hope. A miracle conceived by the Spirit born of the Virgin Mary. May we believe it, may we live it, and point people to their only hope in this world, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for those who don't know you yet as Lord, that you'd grant them faith to believe that you are good, that you love them at the cost of sending your own son, Jesus, of giving up your own life. I pray that they would submit, like Mary, and say, I'm your servant, God. You have all of me. Do to me according to your will. I pray that people would come under your leadership. I pray that we'd be centered for those of us who get off. I pray that we'd renounce all these other things that we replace you with, that we would reject that, that we'd turn away, that we would receive your invitation to come and that we'd receive your challenge to follow you, to take up the cross and to live for you pointing people to you, our only hope. In Christ's name we pray, amen.